Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible today, you can go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Feel free to use that this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, then we have one for you. There's a table in the back. You can feel free to stop by on your way out this morning. Grab one. Make sure you pick that up. And if you're new to reading the Bible, as you turn to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, we're in an ongoing series in the book of Matthew, preaching verse by verse through the entire book. So you'll turn to the book of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. The larger numbers you'll see there are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And for now, you can just hold a placeholder for a few moments, and we'll read our passage in just a few moments. In a 2019 survey and study, the research group, the Barna Group, polled American Christians, practicing American Christians, in an effort to assess the current state of evangelism among them. In the study, the Barna Research Group concluded that while most believers believe that coming to know Jesus Christ is the best thing that could happen for anyone, there's a growing number of believers ages 20 to 45 who feel it's improper to share their beliefs with others in hopes of persuading them to their point of view. But there's a growing number of believers ages 20 to 45 who feel it's improper to share their own beliefs with others in hopes of persuading them to their point of view. Now the reason for that tension, the reasons are myriad owing to any number of personal or cultural factors. Yet what's apparent from that study is that there is a growing disconnect among believers between deeply held belief and day-to-day -day practice. And the reason for bringing the study and its conclusions to mind today, to your attention today, isn't to create some sort of weird self-perpetuating guilt cycle where we come in and I rile you up and say, let's get out and go and do better and do more. While it is a perpetual hope of your pastors that you be involved in sharing your faith, the reason that I share that study or that portion of the study with you today is to acknowledge the reality of that tension in the lives of believers. If we were to bring the study nearer to home in a room this size with this many people, the sentiment expressed by 48% of those surveyed is likely shared here too. For any number of reasons, there may be a disconnect among us between what we say we tend to believe about our faith and about its object, Jesus Christ, and what we sense in front of us as the opportunities to share with others about him. In our text today, as we roll into Matthew chapter 9, we see the melding together of faith and practice with miraculous results. And we'll learn through the passage that Jesus Christ has dealt sufficiently and authoritatively with our sin problem, and that this is the best news that anyone on earth can hear. That Jesus Christ has dealt sufficiently and authoritatively with our sin issue, and that this is the best news that anyone on earth can hear. Follow along as I read our passage today, Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Verse four, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic rose, and he went home. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God, who had given such authority to men. It's important to continue underscoring the context of Jesus's earthly ministry as we move throughout the book of Matthew. We'll find that the attention that Jesus is receiving throughout the book is building up over time. And eventually it will crescendo, it will culminate in the pivotal events of the gospel story. And along the way, we mark out that Jesus is sort of a de facto celebrity in his culture and in the places that he frequents and arrives in. We see this sort of celebrity culture being built up around him, which is significant because all that tends to go away as the story culminates. For my part, I consider myself, a bit about me, an old soul. I enjoy slower things in life. Perhaps some of you are like this. You might find me reading a paper copy of the newspaper instead of scrolling through Twitter. You might find me listening to baseball on the radio my activities don't match often my chronological age. And in more recent years, I have taken to the game of golf as best I can, right? You can always caveat that. And so not only do I try to get out and play, but I've taken to watching golf. And so on Sunday afternoon, you'll find me there. And in more recent years, I've had the opportunity to attend professional golf tournaments. I can feel the excitement in the room rising, right? To most of you, that sounds about as exciting as watching grass grow. And good news, that's basically what you do when you're there. And so you're out on the golf course, but the point I'm making here is that there is a common experience when you attend a professional golf tournament that is shared by all. So just a few weeks, the PGA Tour will descend upon our city in Boston and play a tournament, the US Open, down in Brookline. The tournament will come and put on this event and if you were to be standing out on the golf course, inevitably, these days, at some moment or another, you would hear from a tucked away corner of the golf course, sort of a, a, a low hum, a low sound that would get your attention. And that would grow into a dull roar. And then you would hear a louder roar. And people will begin gravitating toward the noise. And it would become clear, in a matter of moments, that one Tiger Woods has made an appearance. And then what happens over the next four hours is a cultural phenomenon that we might consider weird. For four hours, practically everyone on this golf course will huddle around Tiger and follow his every move around the course. And in recent years, we've had this drone footage, sort of bird's eye of view, but basically you see this blob of people, this amoeba following one man, hanging on his every move, watching his every moment. It's bizarre, if you're kind of outside of that, watching that occur. And in a much greater way, don't know if we made the connection here, but in a much greater way, this is similar to what we see with Jesus throughout the book of Matthew, with larger crowds and more attention and far more impressive things to look at. 
As the crowds gather around Jesus, they'll find something there far more impressive than some golfer. And in this passage, in Matthew chapter 9, we get a front row seat to the divine and earthly power of Jesus Christ. And the tension that his earthly ministry creates for those around him who feel threatened by his authority. Verse 2 in our passage tells us that as Jesus was in this particular location, his hometown, a group spied Jesus out as the one who could help their friend. Read with me again verses 2 and 3. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So here, in the initial description, we see four types of people, four kinds of people. Among the more obvious in the narrative are Jesus himself, the paralytic, and the scribes who have gathered there to cast doubt on Jesus' words and his work. So you have Jesus, you have the paralytic, the one who most obviously needs Jesus, and those who wish to stand in Jesus' way. In stories and narratives like this one, what's commonly lost and often overlooked is sort of the catch-all group, where we're made aware in this passage that, quote, some people are bringing the paralytic to Jesus. In the books of Mark and Luke, we find this account rewritten without a detail. We learned that the group of people was actually four individuals. Bringing the paralytic to Jesus was no small feat, perhaps you remember. Those narratives describe the place where Jesus is teaching as filled to capacity. And those carrying their paralytic friend to him had no way to make it to Jesus. So without any other recourse, they scaled the wall of the building that Jesus is teaching in, paralytic in tow, cut a hole in the center of the roof, and lowered Jesus down through the roof, or lowered the paralytic into, through the roof into the presence of Jesus. We can be sure that our facility issues here at Hope pale in comparison, right? Matt doesn't want to be dealing with a hole in the center of the roof. And yet, though we're given more details elsewhere about the nature of the event, we know precious little about the individuals, the some people who are causing such a scene. To us, and everyone throughout history, for that matter, these individuals who stopped at nothing to bring their paralytic friend into the presence of Jesus, these individuals who see the need of their friend and know that Jesus is the one that can meet that need, are just some people. For many of us, these people in Scripture are the ones with whom we can most identify. I'm not an important name. I often feel like a nobody. Maybe I'm just some people. We find here one of the abiding realities of the Christian faith that far from being centered on main stage personalities or those who are extraordinarily gifted, that the faith has been passed down for over two millennia through the everyday lives and the simple obedience of often ordinary, nameless, faceless people. 
We stand amid a long lineage of saints who have gone before, who though their lives have been in fact impactful, have often been marked by a sort of quiet faithfulness. I love to study church history. And in talking with some of you in the past few weeks, I know that about you as well. And I'm often struck simply by the sheer amount of names that we run across in church history volumes. And yet, on occasion, I kind of force myself to, to remember that even though there are many names in these accounts, that the number of names is probably only scratching the surface. There are millions of faithful believers who have finished their race and who to most people will never be known. Believer, you have individuals in your life like this, right? Don't you have some people? Some people who God used at critical points and significant ways in your life to help bring you to know Jesus Christ? If we had that conversation and I asked you who those people were, you could probably name them. My life is indelibly marked by a pastor and youth pastor, Lance Finley and Steve Mears, by my high school Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Mayo, by my mother who prayed constantly, persistently for my salvation. To me, those names mean something. To you, they're some people. Your list is like that too. Some people have been used greatly by God in your life, and you could tell us all about them. If you're here today and you don't believe, Simply be aware in this moment of the people in your life that God may be using as a conduit to him. There are some people in your life that God is using in this way. For believers in the room, the reality is that even here right now, you're among some people, someone else. The nature of the gospel message is that as it has been and will continue being life for us, that it will be life for someone else on account of your sharing it. So we readily identify with the group in our passage. They, we, are some people. And as some people, it's important that we be encouraged in at least three ways as we seek to uncover what it means to faithfully bring others into the presence of Jesus. First, we ought to be encouraged to be content with living in relative obscurity. We ought to be content with living in relative obscurity. We are known most and we're loved best by God. We're known and loved well by those around us. But the overwhelming reality is, in a historical sense, our names will be lost there. The sobering reality is that we will be largely forgotten, known by few, definitely not by all. And yet, the stunning fact remains that though our earthly status may not account for much, the halls of heaven stand to be a bit more crowded based on the way that the Lord uses us here and right now. Though our names don't often even deserve mention, there will be a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name, that Jesus is Lord. Number two, in addition to being content with living in obscurity, we ought to nurture our own faith and lean on the faith of others. Nurture our own faith and lean on the faith of others. 
You'll note here in our passage, as some people brought the paralytic to Jesus, that it wasn't the mere presentation of the paralytic that moved Jesus to act. When Jesus issues this forgiveness of sins claim, he does so based on the faith that he sees. Jesus responds to the faith of the friends and perhaps even of the paralytic. Therefore, it's important for us as we seek to bring others into the presence of Jesus that we seek to grow in our confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he will do. And yet, as we know and what's been borne out by our experience, if we had an honest moment, sometimes our faith will be found lacking, won't it? Sometimes, often, perhaps, we won't feel up to the task. But God and his kindness has gifted us with brothers and sisters whose faith we can lean on in the context of a local church like this one. If I'm having a couple of bad days, a couple of rough weeks, a spell of bad months, it ought not be odd for me or you to walk into community group this week. And just as honestly as we can manage, say that. I'm having a rough go of it. My faith doesn't feel as strong as it should be. And then, in turn, what we find there in God's gift of our brothers and sisters around us is that they might turn to us and remind us of the precious truths of the gospel and what those truths mean for us moving forward. I can lean on, you can borrow the faith of your brothers and sisters in an effort to strengthen your own. And lastly, as some people bringing others to Jesus, we ought to be convinced that our neighbor's greatest need is to meet Jesus Christ. We ought to be convinced that our neighbor's greatest need is to meet Jesus Christ. Our common interactions with those around us often make us aware of physical needs or ways that we can help. In conversations this afternoon, later this week, with a neighbor or loved one, you'll be made aware of needs that arise and you will feel compelled to help. And the good, right, acceptable, and oftentimes thing most pleasing to the Lord is for you to help, is for you to meet that need. With a conscious awareness that underneath that need, there may be deeper, more abiding spiritual issues there as well. We become aware that as bad things are in the here and now, that the condition of one's soul is that much more important. And so as we go meeting physical needs, we're ever mindful of the spiritual need as well. And this is exactly what the paralytic and his friends encounter when they finally make their way to Jesus. There is an obvious physical need. And yet, did you know Jesus' response? Verses 2 and 3 once more. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes lay this charge of blasphemy. So a paralytic is lying in front of Jesus, and his response to paralysis is to forgive the man's sins. Do we think that not odd? Does it strike you as funny that in a moment where all the conditions of the paralytic situation seem evident and plain, Jesus sees this as a moment to speak to deeper spiritual realities that pervade all 
human life. This is a reminder for us in this moment of the ravaging effects of sin in our world and how Jesus has come, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, not merely to deal with the symptoms of sin, but with the disease itself. From week to week, we have no trouble being privy to seeing how fallen humanity is. And while many, and ourselves among them, scramble to address all sorts of societal ills, we're painfully aware there are deeper, more abiding issues there as well. There's a balance we need to strike. We're reminded that what undergirds rampant evil in our world is a root cause of the sinfulness of man. It's a death, and sickness, and poverty, that the expressions of which do not always one for one tie to individual sin, all of these things in our world are painful reminders that things are not right. That things aren't as they should be. So we see Jesus here moving below the surface, going beyond the symptom to deal with a deeper issue. Jesus' approach and the seemingly ill-suited response here is not lost on those around him, particularly among the scribes who have gathered there. So the scribes are gathered, think the religious leaders of their day, and they sense in Jesus' response to this man something extremely problematic. They gather together discussing Jesus' response among themselves. Verse 3 tells us, they declare together, this man, Jesus, is blaspheming. Far from simply meeting the more obvious physical need, Jesus aims and meeting the paralytic's deeper spiritual need. In forgiving the man's sins, Jesus now is claiming spiritual authority. In the scribes' minds, Jesus is now assuming a divine prerogative. He is claiming the ability and forgiveness of sins to do something that only God is capable of doing. And in their murmuring, in their discussion among one another, putting forth this charge of blasphemy, the scribes are right in a sense. They're sort of mentally assenting to sort of a half-truth. It is true. Only God can forgive sins. And yet, what the scribes are failing to account for in this situation is the off chance that the man standing in front of them is God. Their minds are, for all intents and purposes, made up. Jesus is an ordinary Galilean man. And for him to claim to be able to do something that only God can do is blasphemy. The scribe's skepticism in this sense keeps them from seeing the full scope, the full picture of what's going on. And yet we're reminded in this that skepticism is not always expressed in such adamant terms. Though manifest in many different ways, skepticism, as it relates to the Christian faith, can provide grounds for mutual understanding between both believing and non-believing parties, even if, at the end of the day, the parties disagree. In sort of paradoxical terms, many who are skeptical of the claims of Jesus or the Christian faith, more generally, can operate and relate in good faith seeking to understand better the truth claims that are being made, 
even if, at base, they ultimately disagree. Perhaps you're here today, and your being in the seat that you're in today is part of that sort of journey that you're on, seeking to understand the claims of Christianity in good faith. We want to welcome you, and as often and as sincerely as we can, invite you to dialogue and consider what are these claims? Who is this man, Jesus? To dialogue with us about the Christian faith, about Jesus Christ, about life in a local church, and see for yourself. And yet, there is a manifestation of skepticism that appears on the surface more hostile, more antagonistic toward Christianity. And here, we see that directed toward Jesus himself. And yet, what we know is about, true about Jesus is that often in Scripture, he will approach the, an, an unbeliever an amiable conversation. You might think of the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus under the cover of night and engages him there in a conversation about what it truly means to be born again. And the conversation there is fleshed out. At other times, in this case, the scribes have their minds made up. Jesus speaks not simply to the words they say, but to their sinful motivations. In verse 4, Jesus says, it says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Not addressing merely the words that they say, but the heart level issue. Jesus offers penetrating analysis. Despite their words, he knows their very thoughts. This is a skill perhaps every husband wishes he had, right? To be able to speak to thoughts and not merely words. When I was in seminary, Paige and I lived in this small apartment and I would often come home from class or work and as my eye level sort of made it to the top of our stairs, I would see there leaning against our front door two giant trash bags filled with trash. And so Mike, knowing Paige's thoughts, would dutifully grab the trash bags and carry them however far away it was to the trash compactor. And for months, perhaps years, would pride myself on this keen ability to read the nonverbal cues of my wife. I have found out more recently there are thousands more I missed. And so, as we think of Jesus here, reading the thoughts of men, it provides this platform for him to operate and function and teach from, to address problems that aren't on the surface. And this is what we love most about him. Beyond simply making the claim that Jesus blasphemes, these scribes have evil in their hearts. They have ill motivations. There are nonverbal, heart level issues to which Jesus wants to speak. And throughout the New Testament, we see the role of religious leaders are frequently trying to ensnare Jesus, to trap him, sort of catch him in a mishap or an accidental transgression. But let's be clear. Scripture teaches us, shows us, proves to us that the Son of God will not be backed into a corner. He addresses them in verse 5. For which is easier to say, he asks, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. Which is easier, Jesus asks, to speak to the physical issue or the deeper, underlying spiritual issue? 
Unlucky for us, Jesus doesn't provide an answer here, but it seems what's implied by Jesus here is that he has already taken the more difficult route. The sin issue is more difficult to verify. If Jesus looks at a man, forgives him of his sin, we have no way of knowing if he really has. It's a difficult task. The task of healing, as miraculous as it is, in this instance, seems easier. Its result and its impact are visible, tangible, immediately verifiable. So Jesus speaks to, and he heals the sin issue. And yet, as a proof, as evidence, as a way of going above and beyond to cement the reality of his authority in the minds of the scribes, he acquiesces and he proceeds to the lesser task. He was both the man's physical ailment and his spiritual one. Jesus here in the claim employs again the term son of man, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth. Curtis alluded to this prophecy from Daniel a few weeks ago that Jesus is employing here. And Jesus is showing, demonstrating to the scribes, to those around, to us, that his authority is not bound up in heaven, that it's unleashed here on earth. One commentator notes about this passage that nowhere in the narrative does Jesus deny the scribes' premise that only God can forgive sins. He grants them that. You're exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. But he invites them to reflect on what that truth means here and now. If only God can forgive the sins of men, I've claimed to forgive sins, I've healed the physical ailment, what does that reality mean here and now? If the man Jesus is truly blaspheming, how can he, in the very next moment after claiming to forgive sins, also heal the earthly ailment? How can he loosen spiritual chains and then burst earthly shackles if he's not God? The proof before the naysayers is mounting. The evidence is stacking up. Perhaps the clearest evidence is the response of the paralytic. Jesus turns to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And one of the most impactful verses in all of scripture is verse 7. And this man rose, and he went home. The overall picture we have here is four friends bringing their paralytic friend via a mat to encounter Jesus. And then, moments later, the paralytic standing up and walking back through the crowd, his mat in tow, making his way under his own strength back home. And the very man that has permitted him to do so is claiming heavenly and earthly authority to forgive sins. While we don't know the response of the scribes, we're told the response of both the paralytic and the crowd. Can you imagine the response, the reaction of the paralytic in these moments? Having now his feet set underneath him and his heart set free. The crowd, for its part, was blown away, expressing this admixture of awe and wonder. Verse 8 says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and yet they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. 
this mixture of awe and wonder at the scene, at who Jesus is and what he has done, what he is capable of. A fitting response to this wonder-working God-man who's now come to dwell among them. On and on through the book of Matthew, we get the overwhelming sense, proof after proof after proof, confirmation after confirmation after confirmation, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God incarnate. Come to earth to deal sin and death its final blow. We glimpse a small picture of this reality in Jesus' proclamations to the paralytic himself. His spiritual and his physical ailments have been decisively dealt with. There's a deeper sin issue. Verse 2 tells us, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Have courage. Your debt is paid. Fret less, worry no more. You're set free. To the physical ailment, take up your mat, walk, go home. And every step that that man takes, one after the other, after the other, is living, breathing testimony to the power and the authority of Jesus. And here's the kicker. The amazing thing about God, your life too. Your life too. What unimaginable things have transpired in your life since you came to know Jesus Christ? What can you not explain other than talking endlessly about him? What is it today, believer, that you're beyond grateful for? And perhaps you need to carve out some time, some space to give thanks to God for or tell others about. Who in your life are you some people to? Whose list are you on? Who is it in your life that you are utterly convinced that the best thing for them is to come to know Jesus Christ through saving faith. What's in the way today? Perhaps ask God to ready you there, equipping you in the moment of need to scale the wall or throw back a thatched roof if need be in order to get others into the presence of Jesus. If you're here and you don't yet believe, it's my earnest prayer this morning, that I could in some small way be some people to you. Each time I get up here and open this book, the aim, the goal, is not to have you leave here thinking more about me, but oh, that you would consider Christ and him crucified on account of your sin and mine. This morning, as we move to a close, We wanted to build in time for you to respond, reflect on these truths about Christ. I don't know how to manufacture the excitement in the room when a paralytic is lowered through the middle of it, but I do know how to testify to you about the power and the authority of the Jesus who healed him when he was there. 
This morning, as we consider these claims that Jesus is making, is he truly the Son of God? Who are some people in your life? Who are you some people too? What wonders could God do when the needs are presented before him? So this morning, we'll pause for a few moments of reflection, sort of time built into our service here, and intentionally carved out in your week to consider some of the questions we've been asking to consider Jesus. Perhaps you're giving thanks for the wonders he has worked in your life. Praying someone you know will come to know him as well. Perhaps you're just asking questions today, seeking understanding. One way in addition to reflection here is to touch base with us. You heard a Connect card mentioned earlier. There's a small place on that card for you to write your contact info and name and express any questions you have whatsoever in a confidential box to mark if you need to. We'll take a few moments here now to consider these things before the Lord. If he's truly God, then what happens next? Let's take a few moments to reflect, consider here in the quiet, and we'll come together for the Lord's Supper.